We finally have a peek at the fine print on a new community benefit agreement. We'll discuss that and more with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, Attorney General David Eby will be in studio to talk money laundering and a whole lot more. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Hey, weather. Good morning from a smoky Kamloops. Thanks for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined as always by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Welcome to both. Uh, guys, a few weeks ago, the Premier rolled out a community benefit agreement for big infrastructure projects, essentially mandating union labor, wages, benefits for workers. Uh, yesterday, the fine print released on the agreement governing the Patella Bridge replacement project, giving us some details. Vaughn, uh, why don't we go to you? What, what did we learn in this whole thing? Well, a big thing we learned, uh, Shane, is $100 million. Uh, we asked them, uh, they did finally have a few details on this thing. They gave us the agreement itself, which runs about 337 pages, I think, something like that. Uh, we asked them, how much does all the pro-union stuff in this agreement add to the price of building the Patello? And they said, well, as much as 7%. And they tried to suggest that's no big deal. Well, it's $1.377 billion, haul out your pocket calculator. That's $100 million. That's a lot of money. There's an awful lot of people in a lot of communities in British Columbia that have a, a school they'd like to get built or a bridge or a road, and they're going, well, that's $100 million you don't have to spend here because you're spending it to uh, implement all these pro-union requirements on the Patello. Yeah, and the one thing that confused me about that, and uh, Paulie's going to try and reconnect with uh, with Keith. Okay, Keith's back on the phone now. Uh, Keith, why don't we go to you? One of the things that I'm a little unclear about, and this was a this was a press conference where there was no call in, so you guys were there, and I wasn't able to listen in. So, uh, on the cost, we know that it's going to raise costs up to potentially seven percent, but somehow uh, the overall budget for the Patella itself is unaffected. How how is that? Well, it is affected. Um, in fact, Vaughn and I were asking questions of, her, of the technical guy giving us a brief on, on that exact point. So that, uh, presumably, you, you could subtract 7% from the $1.377 billion, is my understanding, and that would be the cost of the Patello without this agreement. So that's roughly about $100, $100 million. And I think if without this agreement, the Patello would be estimated to cost $1.277. Now it's going to cost $1.377. And you can similarly apply the same uh, ratio to other mega projects out there. And Claire Trevano, the Transportation Minister, says this will apply uh, basically over time to projects that cost more than $500 million. So uh, we're talking the Broadway subway line, the Surrey uh, Light Rail, or whatever transit line uh, out there. And you add 4 to 7%, probably even a little more uh, on top of that to the, to the original estimate. So if it was $2.5 billion for the Broadway subway line, add 7% to that, and you'll get a more true reflective figure for how much it's going to cost. The other thing, I, I don't know if, if I'm late to this because of, uh, I don't know if you touched on this before, but uh, another thing has implications for people in the listening audience here is that there's a 100-kilometer rule that you have to live within 100 kilometers of this project to actually be able to work on it. So um, that freezes out a lot of tradespeople who are usually mobile. They go from project to project. Mm. Um, and they don't necessarily reside where the project's being built. And I know, I know a number of tradespeople fall in that category, and presumably they're going to be frozen out of uh, working on this project unless they live within 100 kilometers of it. 
That is interesting. And it, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the $500 million marker because I was a little confused about where the CBA applies and where it doesn't. We've had the examples of the Patella Bridge, Highway 1, east of Kamloops here, but uh, David Eby, who you'll hear later in the show, uh, told me it doesn't apply, for example, to the BC Lottery Corporation's plans for a new headquarters, although I'd heard some talk that, uh, that hospitals may be included. But apparently we have that threshold now that helps us differentiate, Vaughn. But Shane, the, the, again, for your listening audience, Mm. What does this do to the Trans-Canada Highway for yeah. laning? Because that has been built, as you know, contract by contract, segment by segment. But they're now saying it will apply to that project. So we asked how many contracts and what is your overall budget? We haven't figured that out yet, we were told yesterday. They've approved this thing without knowing how much this adds to the cost of four-landing the Trans-Canada from, from Kamloops to the Alberta border. Well, when the government won't tell you or won't even estimate what it costs, you haul out the highways ministry reports and you go, well, what's it cost so far? You take a guess. Well, according to the Transportation Ministry website, they've spent six hundred and $50 million already on the four-laning, and they appear to have done about 20% of the distance. So uh, that means there's, what, 40, 80% of the distance still to do? It's going to cost, based on what they've spent already, a couple of billion dollars, and this agreement will add $150 million to the cost of getting that work done Again, there's only so much money to go around. That's $150 million less available to build some roads elsewhere in the province or schools or whatever you want. The amazing thing about it is they didn't even know this, right? I I throw that number out because they didn't tell us. So it's a guess, but until they come along with better numbers, the guess will have to stand. (laughs) Uh, Now, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the the line from the government on this, uh, for example, the the 2% wage increase uh, until 2024 on the bridge, for example, will be offset by wage certainty. Keith, what's going on there? It's wage certainty, but it's also no strikes or no lockouts, and mm-hmm. that's uh, that's one of the big um, benefits they're going to be touting on this, and certainly they did in yesterday's briefing. So uh, it's a, it's a guaranteed two percent uh, increase on an annual basis, which I can't think of too many private sector um, jobs out there that get a two percent a year increase for six seven years guaranteed. Uh, that just doesn't happen unless it's an extraordinary situation. Um, but it reflects, I think, the government's negotiating mandate with its public sector unions, which also appears to be 2% a year. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a guaranteed workforce, and it's a guaranteed continuing work with no strikes, and that's what I think they mean by that. And there's a certain amount of guff in this no-strike thing, because there aren't very many strikes these days on construction projects anywhere in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. If you've got a contract, and the contract's locked in, and the wages are locked in, uh, you don't go on strike in the middle of that, and they're, they're kind of pretending that we're way back in the old days when it's true there were a lot of wildcat strikes, and there was a lot more strikes in British Columbia but now the construction industry is has evened out and stabilized anyway so the idea that there's some kind of benefit in this uh, from giving everybody two percent a year and all these other benefits and therefore we're not going to get strikes is I think exaggerated I think they've turned something that isn't really all that necessary because it wouldn't happen anyway into some kind of supposed benefit
I was struck by the excruciating detail uh, in some of this stuff with, uh, you know, for example, we're going to get a mandated elbow room at lunch and all sorts of uh, great salad options, Keith. <laughs> some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, but to be fair, um, that is kind of common boilerplate stuff for work camps. Mm. Um, it has existed, I think, on some of the clock uh, contracts that have been there over the years. I think there's similar provisions. I'm not sure to that level of detail. At, uh, at the Site C camp, for example, where it is, uh, these work camps, um, they, they sort of become sort of very high-end things. I mean, Site C, for example, uh, Vaughn and I have been there. It's a huge uh, yeah. uh, area with a gymnasium and, you know, a, a restaurant, a, a cafeteria. It's not necessarily going to be like that at, at, uh, at the Patello Bridge because that's a more urban center. But I think this would be more applied to work camps in more rural areas. But it is funny to actually read it and talk. About it. it actually refers to Jell-O. Yeah, <laughs> the first Jello mandate I've ever seen in a government contract. But uh, yes, it won't. There won't be a work camp at the Patello, and, and they've told us not to expect it. What this really is, there, Shane, is indication that the New Democrats are intending to go this way on a whole bunch of projects that we don't even know about. Mm. And in any remote or rural part of British Columbia, any area where there aren't a lot of people living around, and the workforce will come from elsewhere, there will be a work camp and it'll be done under these rules, which were, Keith's right, negotiated by the building trades uh, with the Construction Labor Association uh, some years ago, 2008. Uh, a couple quick questions on this topic before you uh, take a break. Uh, Keith, uh, as I remember, John Horgan first brought this up either pre-campaign or during the campaign in relation to the Site C project. So uh, it did have a pool of non-union labor there that uh, he took issue with. Uh, well, he throws around examples like Patella and Highway 1. Do we have any idea yet how this may reframe the labor situation at Site C? No, I've been asking that question. One of, the, one of his seniors' advisors told me when this was first kicked around in sort of an off-hand way that maybe this could apply to Site C. This was before the, the decision to build Site C was actually made. Mm -hmm. So they were thinking about it before the decision was made. I'm not sure how you fit this now into a, an existing project that is so far along. There are still some major contracts to be to be awarded on the Site C dam, and it's, it'll be interesting whether they apply this new rule to uh, to the contracts that have yet to come. The contracts that have already been uh, awarded, I don't think I don't see how you could you could fit this in there at all. But there's still a lot of contracts to be to be awarded, and it's not inconceivable that this will be the new rules going forward. Uh, final comment to you, Vaughn. Uh, you noted on Twitter uh, a day or two ago that um, Mr. Weaver has some complaints about this and, and will in fact meet with the premier today. Yes, uh, Weaver said earlier in the week that he's not very happy with this union preference. He thinks it looks bad. It looks like paying off political friends, and he wants to talk to the Premier about it. Um, we can get a glimpse of just how much the New Democrats care what Andrew Weaver thinks about all this when they released the entire agreement, all 336 pages yesterday, before Weaver even gets to talk to the Premier. He can say whatever the hell he wants. The New Democrats are going ahead on this, and they know that Andrew can grumble all he wants, but he can't do anything about it because he's not going to bring down the government over this issue. All right, let's take a quick break on Radio NL here on Inside Politics, and we'll resume our conversation with Keith and Vaughn on the other side. NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. 
Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Guys, we talked a little about Site C before the break. A different aspect on that one, Vaughn. Uh, West Moberly First Nation is in court with BC Hydro, uh, who has a pretty good court win streak under their belt, but uh, a lot at stake in this, yeah? Yeah, this is huge. Uh, it's a two-week hearing. Uh, West Moberly is going to court next year against the federal and provincial government, arguing serious infringement of their treaty rights by Site C and also by the Peace Canyon Dam and also by the WAC Bennett Dam. So that's a big case. This is a prelude to that. West Moberly in court is arguing that there should be a kind of a stop work order on Site C while they hear that entire case. Uh, obviously, a stop work order on Site C would mean laying off a bunch of people, uh, putting a bunch of contracts on hold, adding to the cost of construction. Hydro says it's about $660 million a year it would add, and of course the holdup could be two to three years. So it's the stakes are as high as they get um, in court on Site uh, Keith, uh, I mean, every streak has its end, I suppose, but uh, for every Mike Tyson, there's an Evander Holyfield, but do you think Hydra's going to be able to get out of this one or no? I, I've detected no real nervousness on the part of Hydro. I mean, these arguments have been tested in court before, um, so I don't, I haven't detected any panic buttons being pressed here by, by Hydro. The request won't be seeking an injunction. Uh, judges, you know, follow precedent. There have been other legal rulings on matters such as this. And, uh, again, I'd be surprised if there was, but there's always a first time. And, and Vaughn's right, the, the big, this is an injunction, injunction relief. The big court case is yet to be heard. Uh, and that's, that's quite a bit down the road. I, I, I think the more lo- likely outcome of all this litigation is probably going to be some sort of cash payment, cash settlement that Hydro will be forced to fork over to a West Moberly and Prophet River uh, uh, First Nations, but uh, a wholesale shutdown of the project would be shocking, but not inconceivable. Uh, now, that's not the only big political story that's taking place in a courtroom. Uh, the uh, ICBA uh, launched an initial court challenge at the end of June to uh, battle the proportional representation referendum, essentially arguing that it violates uh, a few things, uh, including the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, they turned around and said government lawyers are delaying this whole thing. They've now gone, Vaughn, to file an injunction to suspend the referendum pending whatever the outcome is of their initial legal complaint. Uh, what's your read on this thing? Well, I don't like their odds. Uh, again, you never know what's going to happen when you go into a court of law, but I'd be surprised if the courts put a stop to the referendum. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I think they've stacked the deck in favor of the outcome. I think the government can be challenged uh, on fairness and openness and all that, but uh, the referendum is like the last two in, in the respect that it was approved by the legislature, and uh, I'd be surprised if it doesn't go ahead. I think the, the courts are probably not going to interfere in that. Over to you, Keith. I, I'd be surprised too. On the other hand, I have seen you know some legal anal- legal analysis or lawyers arguing that because the government has expressed the desired outcome of the referendum, it's already tipped its hand which way it wants it to go. Unlike previously, that that may open up there a new legal argument for the, the opponents of the same. Wait a minute. Not only is it stacked in favor, but the government has already sided with the with one particular outcome here, and that's unfair. And it'll be interesting whether that has any draws a sympathetic ear from any judge. 
Uh, last question before I let you guys go and uh, for this uh, for today's show, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've seen uh, an interesting pattern from NDP press conferences where uh, it's not until a reporter questions that the true nature of their message of whatever the press conference is, be it Uber, be it the uh, Community Benefit Agreement, kind of comes out. And it seems to be that they, the last few weeks they've been kind of doing this thing where they're trying to buy a few hours of good news. You guys get a sense of that too, Vaughn? Well, I think they're certainly missing how much added bad publicity emerges from that approach in press conferences if you if you see a couple and you've just mentioned two of them where they withheld key information in the press conference you only found out about it afterward that creates a level of suspicion in the room it generates twice as much bad publicity if you just came out of the top and just said here's what we're going to do so uh if that is their communication strategy they ought to revisit it because it's generating more bad publicity than they can use and it seems to be a bit of a change of pace from from press conferences keith well i think i think it varies from minister to minister i mean it's emerging very as in all governments there are strong ministers and there are weak ministers i mean i don't think you got david eby there in the studio i mean he, he doesn't need the communication team he's pretty good at being his own communications guy he doesn't hide any information uh you know adrian dix mike farnworth carol james so that's uh you know that's they're pretty upfront. they don't dodge away from things claire trevine has had a rough go of it mm-hmm. wasn't at this briefing yesterday uh, she had a very bad press conference over the Uber announcement. But that's an example between a strong minister and a weak minister. I mean, uh, E.B., Dix, James, uh, Farnworth, very comfortable in their shoes. They're, they're very experienced and experienced in front of the media. And that can't be said for all their colleagues. Uh, Vaughn, has Larry Penn been uh, lording over his uh, access to the Premier? He, he certainly has, Larry's <laughs> a retirement party to himself. Uh, he's leaving, uh, retiring from the paper at the end of the month, and I'm sorry to see him go, and he ended up sitting next to John Horgan on a flight. A seven-hour interview. Uh, Horgan and he are both claiming the world record for an interview, and I, I can't think of anything approaching that level. I, I look forward to what Larry writes out of it, since, as you know, John Horgan can be quite chatty if <laughs> you get the chance to sit next to him. And they were definitely into the beers a little bit, according to some of the social media pictures. And I, Keith, I don't know if you agree, but I mean, if you're going to give a seven-hour interview to one reporter, I think you should give it to all of them, yeah? <laughs> we'll try that argument out with uh, the Premier, but he's soon to be on his summer vacation. <laughs> I don't, we'll try that argument out with uh, the Premier, but he's soon to be on his summer vacation, so I don't think he's going to be giving too many interviews uh, for a while yet. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, it was a shorter one today with a bit of a rough beginning, but uh, my thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. There we go. There's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, Attorney General David Eby was in Kamloops this week, and he joined us in studio. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by this province's Attorney General, David Eby. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Shane. Yeah, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, You're in town. What's going on? Um, the uh, BC Lottery Corporation uh, sponsors a music event in Kamloops, and so I was up to you play meet, music, meet and greet. And guitar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they actually asked me not specifically not to play music. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's a community event. It's a it's a feel good thing. BCLC is a big part of the community here, and, right. uh, and so I want to come up and support that. 
Okay, sweet. Uh, they're hunting for a new headquarters. Uh, I know that it's not gone to Treasury or anything like that yet. Uh, anything on that front on your end or no? Yeah, they're working hard on that. Uh, they're putting the plans together and the finances for it. Uh, uh, they've got an, an initial uh, uh, request for uh, information out to prospective builders. So it's uh, it's full speed ahead. It needs to go to Treasury. It needs to be approved. And uh, we need to make make sure it makes sense in the fiscal plan. But uh, currently, uh, it's all signals go. Okay. Uh, the new labor agreement, uh, Mr. Horgan announced the other day, will that have an impact on this as far as requirements, et cetera, or no? No, that relates to uh, huge projects uh, like Patel Bridge uh, scale projects, not uh, not BCLC headquarters. Okay. Type the projects. reason I ask is the two local MLAs have raised concerns in that front, so best sure. to run it by you there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, speaking of casinos, let's talk about money laundering. Uh, I know the former head of BC's Integrated Legal Gambling Enforcement Team, um, Mr. Fred Pinnock, raised some serious concerns on Global not that long ago that raised a sort of a fresh wave of shock. Uh, if I remember correctly, your initial reaction within a few days of that story was you wanted to hear directly from Mr. Pinnock. Uh, have you yourself or your staff had a chance to sit down with him yet and hear those concerns directly? Yeah, uh, when uh, Mr. Pinnock raised those issues, obviously I was incredibly concerned, uh, in particular that he said he had information that he hadn't shared yet publicly about how uh, he believed he was interfered with in doing his job of ensuring that uh, money laundering, criminality in casinos was dealt with properly. Uh, so what we've done is, and what we're in the process of doing, is setting up a structure for a meeting so that he's protected, making sure he has legal representation so his interests are protected because he's at risk of potentially defaming people or being sued for defamation at least. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also to make sure that uh, government has as much information as we can have about what his allegations are to make a determination about the necessity for a public inquiry, which there's certainly been some calls for uh, following the German report. Yeah, and on that front, uh, I know that there's been some hesitation. Uh, I mean, the initial opposition to that is, okay, it can be time-consuming, everyone's going to lawyer up, it can cost a bundle of taxpayer money. The flip side of that is there seems to be a wave, a public outcry, uh, prior to the German report, certainly uh, since the German report and since every allegation that's come along, and I have a feeling we're not done yet, but uh, people want someone to be called on the carpet, a person or a person. So as far as the public inquiry or whatever form of fault-finding something takes, what's your current stance on that? Well, the reason why we uh, took the approach of a review initially was uh, I wanted uh, British Columbians to know as quickly as they could uh, what I was getting briefed on and I also wanted a third party to come in and tell me the extent of the problem we had and make recommendations to stop it as quickly as we could um, because I was briefed essentially that this activity was ongoing in casinos as I was getting briefed. Uh, so we did that with Dr. German. We had a very good review. The issue is that when people saw the videos uh, and they're very similar to the videos that I saw that are part of uh, active investigations so I'm told, um, they had the reaction of how could this be? How could it be that someone could walk in with a reusable shopping bag full of $20 yeah, bills sure. and nobody calls the police and there's no investigation about where the money came from? And, uh, and so that call for accountability is totally understandable. Uh, we just need to make sure that we're going to be getting additional information out, that there's a benefit uh, to this kind of approach. They can be quite expensive and time-consuming. And we also have a, a second piece of this that we need to do in terms of where the money's gone because it's not coming into the casinos in the same way. Uh, so where is it going now? And also uh, there have been serious concerns raised about the connection to the real estate market in Metro Vancouver, and we need to address that as well. Yeah. Um, and Sam Cooper, I know you've credited with doing uh, amazing work in this file, is, is still churning out stuff. Another revelation uh, this week about a Hong Kong tycoon with some uh, rather suspect links to the underworld in partnership with a BC-based business. Uh, more sort of spidey sense tingling over there or no? 
Well, uh, Mr. Cooper's done a very good job of raising uh, concerns and raising public awareness around issues of, uh, frankly, a lack of enforcement uh, that's taken place, especially around money laundering. Um, he's raised concerns about uh, Great Canadian and a business venture they were involved in about 17 years ago. Uh, we don't have uh, the records they were destroyed um, uh, from that time period. So it's a bit of a challenge for us uh, going forward. We're looking at the information he's brought forward to find out uh, the, when I say we, it's actually the regulator, mm. uh, the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch. And any action that will be taken will be taken through the regulator's uh, office. When you say the records are destroyed, is that a routine thing or something a little suspect? Yeah, records are retained for okay. a decade and then they're destroyed. Okay. Yeah. Uh, considering all the allegations that you've seen and, and the sheer amount of money that's flowing through uh, like, a, like a laundromat in casinos, and um, number one, do you feel like the human cost has been glossed over a bit? When you just say the term money laundering, it sounds fairly innocuous. And I thought Sandy Garasino recently did a good job of saying, okay, well, yeah, money laundering, but this is the, the game of, of criminal enterprises, prostitution, uh, thievery, scams. Uh, there's been kidnappings and, and certainly death involved. I mean, this is blood money in a very real way. Uh, does that impact you on a personal level? Yeah, I, I think um, there, there are a couple uh, reactions that I had to what I saw. One was just um, awe at the, at the scale of it uh, and the volume, obviously, of whatever activity it was that was generating the cash. And mm. Dr. German's linked that to, among other things, fentanyl. And we've got this very serious overdose crisis and, and purchasing precursors for fentanyl and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, and the other is, uh, is concern about, well, what does this mean in terms of we see gang warfare gang warfare on the Lower Mainland. We see innocent people being shot uh, in uh, Vancouver and Surrey. Uh, certainly the interior has not been immune uh, to this kind of activity as well. And, uh, and to the extent the government turned a blind eye to the laundering of the profits of organized crime and these kinds of criminal activities, um, what was the facilitation of uh, what... There's a reason why people are shooting each other, mm. and that's over the profits right. uh, that are being laundered through the casinos. And uh, and so, yeah, it, it does have an effect. And, and as I see the money that government's spending trying to react to the overdose crisis uh, out of one pocket, well, uh, government for many years took money in uh, into the other pocket from the proceeds of fentanyl dealing, among other illegal activities. Uh, you've got to wonder how much uh, damage we did to ourselves. I was struck in the German report and uh, certainly some investigative reporting as well. Uh, the sheer number of people within the system that raised alarms, whether it's within the RCMP, casino employees, what have you. People through this entire time were saying, something is going on here, this is wrong. And somewhere in the system, it hit a wall. Uh, considering the sheer amount of money in the criminal enterprise involved here, is there any concern on your end that, that something may have been illicit within the system itself, that a person or persons may be responsible or linked to somebody in the underground who have played a role in this, and maybe even a criminal nature, or, or no? Well, the I mean, the allegations raised by Mr. Pinnock are of corruption of government, and, and to his mind and his allegations, the corruption wasn't a bag full of money. The corruption was uh, the willful blindness to what was raising money for the provincial yeah. treasury, which was this uh, high-level, high-stakes gambling, uh, where these high rollers were bringing in these bags of cash, and the province was actually making money from that. Uh, and so that's his allegation going forward, which is one type of corruption. The other concern, uh, certainly, uh, that people have is were there people being paid? essentially was her actual mm -hmm. uh, money in bags uh, kinds of uh, corruption taking place. I haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, but one thing that I am incredibly concerned about is when people came forward to raise the concerns, as you say, whether it was uh, Inspector Baxter at the RCMP, whether it was the two members of the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch who were ultimately fired, uh, who were continually raising the alarm on this, uh, 
all these individuals, instead of being taken seriously, instead of uh, having their concerns addressed, uh, were uh, dismissed or disciplined. Uh, and that uh, obviously uh, was a signal to other people to keep their mouths shut about it. And, uh, and whether that was done deliberately or just out of a, a sort of a, a real reluctance to know what was going on as long as the money kept rolling in, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but I haven't seen any evidence of that sort of direct corruption. Okay. Uh, this uh, money laundering investigation uh, by Mr. German's not over. Uh, we know he's launching sort of a phase two, looking in sort of the housing real estate market. Uh, last I checked with Mr. German, uh, they were sort of working on laying the foundation for it, uh, working towards the terms of reference, et cetera. Where are we at right now? Have we settled the terms of reference or still in that process? Um, real estate's a much uh, uh, woolier issue than casinos. Uh, casinos, we had three major casinos in the Lower Mainland, every transaction documented through FinTrack surveillance video, um, certainly policing uh, involved. Uh, real estate, um, there are issues that have been raised in relation to the use of builder's liens, uh, where people might provide cash in exchange for a builder's lien being registered against a property. Uh, there are concerns about uh, who actually owns properties. There are concerns about the people who are bringing in the bags of cash into the casinos, also saying that they were involved in some way in the real estate industry. Uh, and so there, when you, there are all of these different issues bundled up together, as well uh, with even just the prevention government, you have Ministry of Finance, Attorney General, and Solicitor General responsible for policing. Mm. So there's a bunch of moving parts. We're trying to bring it all together into uh, something that will be a useful inquiry that will provide people with the information that they're looking for about uh, whether we have uh, an issue with money laundering real estate, and if so, how big is it and how do we address it, um, but also that won't continue for years with no apparent end and no results. Uh, so that's what we're working on right now is getting those terms of reference down and making sure we have uh, a clear set of directions for, um, for this review to make sure that uh, that it's useful for British Columbians. Yeah, you said it a bit there, but it's going to be a more difficult scope than, say, the casinos. I know I was talking to Peter German who called it a completely different animal. Uh, so from a from a difficulty and a scope perspective, how do you foresee the timeline? I mean, the casino report was sort of fairly tight. Do you think you need to allot more time and allow Mr. German to kind of dive into this mess or, or no? Um, it's, it's hard to predict at this stage without a terms of reference how long it will take him to do this work. Um, one thing that was really successful in the casino review was to ask him to provide recommendations as he went along, as he identified uh, uh, issues for us to address. And one of those was uh, tell the casinos not to accept this cash unless they know where the money came from. Pretty common sense recommendation, but that shut yeah. the door on that money immediately. And so uh, my hope is that if it is an extended review, that he will uh, um, and uh, the reviewing team will feel free to provide uh, recommendations to us going forward. Civil forfeiture possibly playing a role? I mean, if he finds criminal activity in House X and apartment building Y have been gained through the use of criminal enterprise, do you, do you use that particular muscle or no? Well, one of the questions that I've had it, and uh, and one that I hope that this review will address is, you know, when you have all these forms of people declaring that they're walking $200,000 and $20 bills into a casino, um, can we connect that uh, with real estate purchases and other activities by these individuals. Uh, you know, the government of China has a list of, uh, of uh, people that they believe are uh, taking money illegally out of the country uh, uh, through uh, corruption in their own country. Uh, the government of the United States has concerns about, uh, certainly concerns about the company PacNet that operated for many years in, in Vancouver. Uh, what information are we sharing with other governments? How are we connecting that up with what's happening in Vancouver? Uh, how can we legitimately share information, can we, with a government like the government of China? 
Uh, and so there are a bunch of questions like that. And and if we could, uh, if there's a way that we can do that, could we use that information to uh, to potentially uh, engage mechanisms like civil forfeiture? Um, I think it's really important for us to ask those questions because the reason why people are putting their money into the real estate market, if it's taking place, and I do believe it's taking place on the information I've seen, mm-hmm. is because they're A, profiting from it, and B, they're able to do it in anonymity and without any consequence. And so we need to address those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, we're going to take a quick break and uh, continue our discussions on the other side. Uh, BC's Attorney General David Eby is in studio here on NL's Inside Politics. More after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're continuing our discussion with Attorney General David Eby, who's in studio with us this morning. The Independent Contractors and Business Association uh, has gone to BC Supreme Court to file an injunction, basically seeking the proportional representation referendum be suspended pending the outcome of their initial legal complaint, uh, saying it essentially violates the Charter of Rights. Uh, your take on this latest turn, viable yeah. option for them or no? Well, they um, do want to stop uh, British Columbians from voting on this issue. I think it's incredibly important that British Columbians have their say. Uh, in how we send people to Victoria, whatever side of the issue people are on. Uh, and so uh, we'll be contesting that uh, in court. We think that the, the referendum should go ahead. You're a lawyer. Do they have legal basis or no? Uh, our lawyers will be putting forward the arguments in court, and I can't really uh, uh, go into detail outside of court. It's not especially useful. Uh, we'll be making our arguments in front of the court, but what I will say is we're going to do uh, what's necessary to make sure the British Columbians have their uh, chance to uh, to have a vote about how we send people to Victoria. The essential argument is they're saying the timeline's too short, the question's confused, the whole thing's contrived. On that basis, uh, can you respond? Well, they're raising a number of uh, arguments that are very uh, similar to those that have been raised by uh, people who are campaigning against uh, the uh, change to a different system in British Columbia. And I think that that's where those arguments are best placed. I think that if you are opposed to proportional representation, go out and campaign and convince people of your point of view. Uh, don't uh, go to court to try to stop the vote from happening. Is it fair on a, on a pure vote basis, David, is it fair that, that we go through a vote and have so much on the other side that's decided as far as, you know, ridings, maps, and some of the sort of more intricate information after people have voted? Is that fair? Um, so the uh, process that's been set out is provides a great deal of detail to the extent that people are uh, uh, very interested in uh, in how some of the more refined uh, issues within the different systems uh, will operate. Uh, there's a great deal of information. There's been critiques that there's too much information. It's too confusing about too many systems. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, that there's not enough information for people to vote. It really depends on your perspective whether you're in favor of changing the system or not. Regardless, Elections BC will be providing information to British Columbians from a, a, an independent uh, perspective and uh, British Columbians can use that information to inform themselves about how they'd like to vote. All right. Uh, final topic, or at least one of the final topics. I always have 727 more questions for you, so. There's a lot going on, man. There's a lot going on. Yeah. You're a busy guy. Busy times. Yeah. Uh, ICBC's legal expense is up 24% of total annual cost. That's greater than the cost of running the entire show over there. Uh, concern? Yeah, I mean, this is our big concern about uh, the sustainability of ICBC is way too much money goes into uh, administering legal processes instead of uh, helping people with rehabilitation and and their costs and so on. So what we've done is uh, we've put forward a number of reforms and legislation. They've all passed. Uh, They will be implemented April 1st, 2019. It's a simplified process for people uh, with less serious injuries and more serious injuries. They'll go through the full process that already exists. But our hope is that the simplified process will reduce legal costs significantly. 
significantly and we'll pass on those savings to British Columbians in the form of uh, more sustainable uh, insurance rates and also a more sustainable insurer. Currently, ICBC is losing about a billion dollars uh, fiscal year. Yeah, it's a bit of a financial mess. So on that front, uh, we learned recently that 2017 saw a record number of crashes. One assumes that there is an equal and corresponding number of claims. As you, uh, you know, are you up to in your up to your neck and kind of trying to right this fiscal ship? Does that throw a bit of a spin your way? Yeah, we've got a big problem here uh, in BC, uh, and that's that people who drive well, who don't get into at-fault accidents, um, are not receiving enough benefit of driving that way. Their insurance rates are just about as high as someone who's uh, driving poorly. And so we need to start connecting the dots for people that if you're going to drive out there and cause accidents, your insurance rates are going to be significantly more expensive. And if you don't, your insurance rates are going to be significantly cheaper. Uh, So we did a big consultation with British Columbians. More than 35,000 people participated. Uh, all agree that good drivers should pay less and bad drivers should pay more. <laughs> uh, and they all uh, are uh, uh, fairly consistent in saying uh, that although there should be a shift, uh, that it should be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20%. Uh, either way, that good drivers uh, seeing about a 20% discount and uh, and bad drivers seeing about a 20% increase. Uh, and more than that felt unfair to them. But to shift that uh, so that there's more reward for people who drive well. Uh, insurance rates, that's something that uh, grabs everybody regardless of how they vote by... Uh by the all the good sense that they have and generally makes people angry. We had a study out to recently saying that we have the highest insurance rates in the country. Your response, and, and if so, any solutions coming down the pipe? Yeah, I won't nitpick the details. Uh, they they chose uh, certain numbers. We're certainly in the top three, without doubt. Uh, but joining us in the top three is Ontario. Uh, they have a fully privatized system. And I do uh, take issue with the survey's uh, su- supposed solution, which is privatizing our insurance market would provide savings to British Columbians. There are some good drivers that would see a decrease, but overall mm-hmm. British Columbians, I believe, would pay more because they're also paying for the profits of the private insurance companies and the system would be the same. So we have to fix the system in BC of so much money going into the courts uh, and into the legal processes around this and we're working on doing that. And I just ask people uh, to give us a chance to do that and uh, hopefully we'll get in a position like Saskatchewan where they have a very profitable uh, public insurer that provides returns uh, to uh, people who live in Saskatchewan in a very significant way. I think we can get there again with ICBC, ICBC has in the past provided these kinds of returns and that's why it was established. It's just been mismanaged very badly over the last decade. So bare bones, if if all the dominoes fall the way that you would like them to fall and this fiscal ship is righted, good drivers with good driving records could potentially see their insurance rates decline. Yes, um, so we'll be, (laughs) I've got an announcement uh, in a couple weeks about some of the details about the shift uh, that we're uh, making based on the consultation we engaged in with British Columbians about good drivers paying less and bad drivers paying more. Uh, And in addition, we're also fixing the underlying system to get the overall all costs down in the system and the savings that are realized from that uh, will be passed on to British Columbians. Uh, last question, your uh, West Vancouver Point Grey MLA. Uh, it's a very uh, urban riding. Uh, how do you fall on the on the uh, Uber issue? I'm sure plenty of your constituents, especially the youngsters over at UBC, would like to see something like that fall in. Yeah, I'm very enthusiastic about ride sharing done properly. Um, and when I say done properly, making sure that uh, uh, workers are treated well and making sure that uh, passengers are adequately covered in terms of the driver having had a proper background check and, uh, and, uh, and the insurance in place being there if there's an accident that they're mm. covered they don't need to worry about that um, and uh, we're taking the steps necessary to to make that happen uh, The uh, I understand the impatience of people around it um, I'm impatient too 
and uh, <laughs> I also know that uh, that uh, we've got some challenges ahead of us to make sure that the insurance uh, works well in, in terms of my portfolio and all the other changes we're doing with ICBC right now. So it's taking a little bit more time than we thought, but September 2019 uh, should be uh, when we introduce uh, a system uh, where uh, where these rideshare companies feel that they can come into the market here. We'll have legislation in the fall about that. Will the legislation include cha- changes at ICBC then? Uh, it will. It will enable ICBC to be able to provide insurance products for uh, for rideshare. Okay, interesting. Uh, Dave, you've been generous with your time. Uh, always good to see you, especially here in studio. It's a rare treat for me to have somebody in front of me. I'm usually talking to a phone. So yeah, it's great to be here in Kamloops. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to see the NL uh, World Headquarters. It's fantastic. <laughs> World Headquarters. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That is Attorney General David Eby, and that's it for today's edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests today, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Dave Eby. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. 6.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, this is Radio NL 610 AM. Local News Now.